The Robin Caleb Show looks at various theological aspects that relate to Torah observance for the disciples of the Messiah Yeshua. The Robin Caleb Show is a production of TorahResource.com. Yeah, show 200. Here we are. How's my goal, man? It's like cricket sounds. <laughs> it's cricket sounds. I wonder if I should re- redo this. Oh, oh, we got one person in there. Oh, right. yay. Okay. All right. My my, count, my counter is off. It says nobody's in there. Let's uh, let's refresh and just see what happens. Get started. I'm I'm sorry, everyone. I'm not sure what's going on here. What is happening here? Well, I uh, attempted to uh, log in, and unfortunately now it looks like uh, I'm locked out of my live stream. So t- tell me. Uh, well, hopefully it's working. Well, how's it going, man? How was your last? Uh, how was your last? Uh, your last week? It was. It was good. Oh, except there's like this bug going around, and some people in our family got this bug, and I'm like, okay, so we've got everything wiped down. I'm like, thankfully, I haven't had it. Or got it, so I'm hoping that I won't. (laughs) But it's cold here, and it's my skin dries up in the winter just because it's we got the heater going. You know, it's below freezing outside all the time, dry air. But it's it's totally beautiful. I love the sunshine on the snow. I really I don't know. There's something that just feels really good about about the sunshine in the in the cold winter. But. Excited about uh, one thing I learned this yesterday that I didn't know, but apparently you had put it on Twitter like a month ago. What's that? <laughs> that you had uh, submitted an abstract for an SBL uh, conference, and I was like, right on! I'm excited for you. I'm proud of you. I uh, after hearing your uh, your abstract, I was like, that's right on. Uh, they would be uh, they would be dumb they would be foolish not to oh thanks man give you give you a spot there so excited about that for you and um also just reflecting back on two we've done 200 of these is like wow where yeah. did the time where does time go I know, but right? those are out there right i mean are, are all 200 episodes now going to be available on youtube or are yeah or only select episodes no it should all be there um, so in a way, it's like we we planted a tree and we kind of grew this tree for four years, and now we're just it's just out there, right? People can come and so we should eat. talk. We should talk about this. We should talk about this, and I want everyone to know that uh, you know we're not changing drastically. One of some of the things that you'll see is like um, new art will show up probably next. Uh, oh, that's why. Hang on, everybody. I'm I'm getting there. Why is I'm having a hard time because uh, for some reason my my uh, YouTube account here uh, logs me out of the Robin Caleb show and into my personal account switch accounts. There we go. I apologize, everybody. Give me a second. There so our technical uh, dragging our all our listeners through the technical uh, <laughs> snafus will a, probably continue. That, th- that yes, will be one that thing will that still, will remain okay. unchanged. And and the other thing is is that we should remember that uh, you know the, basically the the format will change a little bit, but at the same time it's not going to be uh, it's it's not going to be drastically different. The main thing that I want to do with the with the new format of the Robin Caleb show. First of all, we're changing our name, and uh, it's not the, the names Rob and Caleb will still be in the title. Don't worry for everyone who it's thinks that the Caleb and Rob show. <laughs> I love I yes right. I love how everybody says that we have some like great brand. Like oh, don't rebrand right. The Robin Caleb show has this your name recognition. You type Rob and into iTunes, and there's like twelve different uh, podcasts that come up. Rob and and. None well, of them and are they're the all Rob- me. See, I, they're all me. <laughs> oy vey. No, oy vey is right. Okay. Um. So, but people will see, you know. And Rob asked if we're going to keep the uh, the idea of the thirty six listeners. 
I don't see any pr- why why we couldn't. We're not going to not have fun, right? But it does almost feel a little bit like the Robin Caleb show is coming to an end. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but all of our Robin Caleb shows will still be up on the same YouTube channel. You're not going to have to subscribe to a new YouTube channel or anything like that. You, we're. I think that we're going to be able to keep the same iTunes and everything. You're not going to. Nothing's going to change. You just keep keep listening, and and here and here we'll be. We'll be here for you. But that's just it. Is we're trying to help people a little bit more instead of, uh, you know, put people down. It's something that we don't want to do. And um, I've noticed that there's some major issues um, in the Christian world, Messianic world, and the Hebrew roots world, and uh, major issues when it comes to um, belief in the Messiah and who the Messiah is. So one of the things I want to do is I want to do a topical study, uh, essentially, of the Messiah. So we, we got a, a, a comment on one, on one of our last videos. And the comment went something essentially like this, and I don't have it in front of me, but they said, basically, you guys are totally out to lunch. Nobody believed that Jesus was God until the fourth century when the Roman Catholic Church made that, you know, made up that view. This shows a total lack of understanding of the messianic, messianic expectation in my mind of the first century and prior, what the Bible says about the Messiah what the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament says about the Messiah, all these things put together to say that, that uh, nobody believed Yeshua was God until the fourth century uh, is, uh, it's simply not true. I, I mean, I, I don't want to put the person down, but it shows a, it shows a lack of under, uh, it shows a lack of knowledge in history, in basic history and also in the texts. And so, but those are the kind of things that I want to talk about that we can, you know, we can do these kind of studies and show people, um, uh, oh, thank you, Gary. Uh, We can, we can do these kind of studies and show people um, uh, why that kind of understanding is, is not correct. Um, That that understanding is, is not based in, in facts, in the facts. Okay. So one of the things that I do want to start doing um, in our new format, which will begin next week, we're excited for that. And so we figured that we'd close out the Robin Caleb show under the Robin Caleb show name as uh, the Robin Caleb show. And uh, we'd close out 200 shows and then we would start a new format next week. And so uh, that's why the, the title of this is See You Next Time. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, one of the things I want to do is I want to talk every once in a while about what you're reading and what I've read. And um, so uh, there was a really fun feed that our friend Nathan put up on to YouTube or onto Facebook last week. And he had listed the things that he had read in 2017. Mm-hmm. And uh, off the top of my head, I didn't have uh, things that I had read. So I named a couple that I just came came into being. Now you tell me while I collect the books off of my, off my shelf, what are some of the books that you've read in 2017? Oh boy. Now if I'm upstairs, I have a different, see, I have books that migrate (laughs) from downstairs to upstairs. So my office is downstairs, but I spend, I like being upstairs because I like sunshine and reading with natural light and everything. So the books that I had available, I actually responded to Nathan's email or post or whatever with the books that I have up there right now. And those are books I'm still working through. One is, uh, I think it's Teresa Morgan. It's called Roman Faith and Christian Faith. And that is a monster book. That is thick reading. Um, But what Morgan does is she looks at all these um, uh, places in the larger Greco-Roman world of the use of pistis, of faith. What is, what is, how did, how was the word faith used and what evidence do we have for it in ancient um, Greco-Roman world, whether it's literature or inscriptions, things of that nature. And then she looks at how was it used in the Septuagint? How is it used in Paul? And then she tries to bring all this together and say, where are the commonalities? Where are the differences? 
But one of her core points is that pistis has to do with uh, community and, and covenant relationship. It's a, it's a relational term. Uh, and uh, anyway, that's a really good book, thick reading. Another one is called Blood for Thought, and it is, it's kind of a scary-sounding uh, title, Mira Balberg. Um, but Blood for Thought is about the rabbinic uh, reimagination, if you will, in the Mishnah of the sacrificial system. So the rabbis of the Mishnah are, you know, way out. The, the rabbis that are talking about the, the sacrifices and describing them never lived in a time where there was a temple. So they're like 100 years later at least talking about details of, of temple uh, sacrifice ritual. Yeah, and that's so interesting. She, yeah, so what she does is try to get into there and try to understand how uh, how the rabbis are thinking of of sacrifice and what makes a sacrifice valid versus invalid in terms of the rabbinic uh, rabbis of the Mishnah. So this again, this is coming after the temple had long been gone, um, but yet rabbis still have to explain sacrifices and, and in their worldview. And so she dives into that, and uh, it it's uh, it's really uh, a, an interesting read. Again, I'm in the middle of in the thick of that one as well. But those are two recent ones. So there's a lot of books I I've read. Not every book I read I start do I finish. I, I don't know about you, Caleb, but you know. If it uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, if it doesn't grab me. I'm like, you know what? I I might skim through it and grab what I need, and then and that's it. Well, everyone knows one of the ones that grabbed me, and I was reading this at the beginning of last year, and that is Jesus in the Last Supper by Brant Petrie. We had Doctor Petrie on um, to talk about his chronology, um, and that has really become like the uh, I don't know. It's like the reference book that I keep going back to. This, anyone, and you'll see a theme in all these. Um, this is the standard that everyone references. You can see all my notes that I reference. This is Joachim jo Jeremiah's The Eucharistic uh, Words of Jesus. And then. That's old school. That's that, like super what, old school, the 50s? yeah. Is that yeah. the 50s? Yeah, but his work is still resonating today. And actually, I think uh, that one was, uh, that's uh, translated from the third edition. He wrote it in German. German, right. And, German. and then it was translated, I believe, in 1973. I could be wrong about that. The Eucharist of the Early Christian Church, of the early Christians, I should say. Uh, the Eucharistic Liturgies. This is an excellent book. Uh, and, then, and then I changed gears. And you can see where my research now has changed gears from Symposium to Eucharist. Mm -hmm. This book was uh, has totally shifted my understanding of first century uh, Passover celebration, to be completely honest. Uh, then going along with that same motif, exclusion and judgment in yeah. fellowship meals, also an excellent book. And then finally, this is the one that I'm... Who's I'm, the author of that one? Is that this is... Uh, it's, it, I, I don't, I'm going to get his name wrong, but it's Lana Wabang Jamir. I'm pretty sure that he's uh, an Arab fella. Um, and actually, the, the subtitle of this is The Socio-Historical Background of 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. And so... If I remember right, he doesn't think the Last Supper was a Passover meal. I think you're right. If I, rem if I remember right. Anyway, what, I, what I'm excited about, Caleb, with the the books that have been you've been chewing on here is that they all are kind of uh, the undergirding, right? They fueled your thinking that you're looking to present, hopefully, you know, at at the SBL conference, right? Um, a well, focused, and then, and then the final uh, one, abridged. oh yeah, the origins of the Seder. And that's a, a boxer. No, who? Yeah, who? boxer, and and he takes a different view um, than most of the people I have been think, reading. I think boxer. Is a he's a rabbinic scholar, correct? Yeah, and he's so, not a he's not a he's he's only looking at Pauline writing secondarily, right? Uh, right. And so basically, what he's going to argue, well, he's not even looking at Pauline writings. Basically, what he's doing is he's he's trying to say, or I meant Eucharist uh, only. He only touches on it tangentially. Oh yeah, just very very briefly. But what he tries to say is that um, the Passover Haggadah that we have must have had some roots in the first century. So then he tries to trace what would have been, you know, what came, because a lot of the, uh, a lot of the argument, which I, which I was unaware of until I uh, entered into this study, 
But a lot of the argument uh, is that the Haggadah that we have today was highly influenced by the Greek symposium. Right. And that's like a Greco-Roman drinking party. And um, before everyone in the chat room starts yelling that that's ridiculous, actually the evidence is, is quite strong. And this is different. Caleb, your approach is different than that of saying, let's say you just go to a, a modern more, you know, tr- um, what I want to say, a modern traditional Seder mm-hmm. and saying, oh, this points to Messiah, this points to Messiah, this points to Messiah, this points to Messiah. That's that's not the approach right. that, that you're taking. You're taking uh, a historical critical kind of angle. Right. Um, yeah. So m- more my, my angle is to be completely honest with you, I'll give you the I'll give you a, a peek into my uh, to a, a portion of my thesis. My idea is that in the first century, there was no set halakha on how to conduct a Passover meal. What it was is each individual group and even within Pharisaism. So we don't have anything in, um, you know, we don't have really any insight into the Pharisees and what they did in the first century. All we have is much later rabbinical writings that seems to come from symposium uh, tradition. And so when we see certain things, the question has to be, was this common for everyday meals or was it specific to the Passover? The one thing that we know about the Passover meal is that it was centered solely around the sacrificial lamb. That's what we know. Beyond that, uh, we're, we're really shooting in the dark. It's, it's, it can be argued both ways, and I bring that up. So I, I show that both sides have uh, can make arguments. Good. All right. Boy, uh, we're, we're eating up time here. We haven't even talked about our I know. Well, the first, the first 10 minutes was me trying to figure out how to get back into YouTube. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry about that, everybody. Okay, let's, uh, let's read. We, we have some... Uh, we have well, some... I do, oh, I do have a gematria. Really? Two, the show 200 is the letter Raish. Hang on just a sec. Do I have the music for this? <laughs> so, Rob's... <laughs> Well, no, no don't I don't have, think I do. You don't have to do that. Oh, man. I was just saying 200 is the letter Raish, and it's the first word of my name, the first letter of my Rob. name in Hebrew. So, oh. you you know, what can I say? That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, well, one of the, the music that I do have is uh, is the mail time. So let's open up the Robin K- for pro- what could possibly be the last Robin Caleb show mailbag. Now mm. we're still have, you know, maybe it'll still be called that. Who knows? But what could be the last Robin Caleb show mail time? Let's open up the mailbag. Mail time. Mail time. Mail time. here. All right. Um, I'm not going to use names on these. This is an excellent question. Now, for those listening, uh, especially in the chat room, notice that there are three main questions in this email, and we will get to hopefully all three of them. Um, This person said hello and gave some uh, wonderful accolades to the Robin Caleb show, which we always appreciate. Thank you for that. And then she goes on and says, am I supposed to be wearing a head covering during prayer? Now, she's talking about 1 Corinthians, of course, which we'll read here shortly. Uh, she goes on, and also, should I not be wearing pants? I don't ask these in light of a religious connotation, but as a follower, and I am not only concerned with outward appearance, although I believe it is a part of our testimony to others. I don't know anyone else who covers or doesn't just wear pants daily. We go to a contemporary Baptist church for two years. We came out of a non-denominational Christian church foundation in Pentecostal theology of 15 years. Not the kind that only wear dresses and buns, mind you. Although I am a recent one-year believer in following Torah. Baruch Hashem, good for you. Uh, in keeping of the feasts, days, and not celebrating secular holidays. That actually could be another point right there, right? What do you consider secular holidays? I, I, I will admit to you, Rob, uh, the 4th of July is, is a, a very fun holiday for me. I enjoy it. And the reason why is because... <clears throat> One of my favorite things to do is to get the guys around the barbecue, act like we all have to be there in order to flip the meat, even though only one person really does, 
have a couple of beers and chat. And that's what the 4th of July is all about. A couple beers, some barbecue, guys uh, pretending like they're doing something just so they can sit around and, and talk. I mean, that's really like the best kind of holiday you can have. Is Thanksgiving? Who doesn't like to eat as much turkey as possible? I'm all about it. So good tradi- it, It's a good tradition. Right, right, exactly. Anyway, okay, so maybe for another time. She says, <coughs> pardon me. <coughs> uh, she says, I'm still up slash down about celebrating Shabbat every Saturday. Does it matter what day we celebrate it? Um, give me just one second here. I'm going to mute myself and uh, cough real quick again. Sorry about that. Okay, so the three questions that I see here are, am I supposed to have my head covered during prayer? Uh, this is a woman, so this is why, obviously, she I believe she's talking about 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, and then also, should she not be wearing pants? So question number two. And then, does it matter if Shabbat is on Saturday? Now, I don't know if we've ever answered these questions before, but these are certainly good questions. So where to start? Where do you want to start? You just want to st- start at the top of the list. Well, maybe start with Shabbat. Okay. I have my... Uh, my. That seems to be, from our view, maybe that's the lowest hanging fruit. In other words, it's the easiest maybe... Get the bat that, ready because it's an underhand coming Well, I would just say that, that, that what do scriptures right. tell us? You know, especially if you just go to the 10 words, you know, and... and Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy okay, so 5. This, this, is a, this is a great point. So if you go to the 10 words, okay, let's take the other commands away from Torah for just a second. Let's just look at the 10 words, the 10 commandments, okay? This is the only commandment that people thinks, think out of those 10 that people think are flexible. It doesn't say, you shall not commit adultery, Unless you have a really good connection with the person or you should not steal unless you're out of cash that day. You know, people don't say, oh, well, I can be flexible on the other things. And in Exodus 31, it tells us, therefore, the children of Israel, Israel shall keep the Sabbath as an eternal covenant. It is a sign forever that in six days, Adonai made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So he's very specific about it. And in the ten words he says, six days you shall work, and on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to the Lord. So we know that it's not only— right. so, so if you reject that scripture and say that doesn't apply to me, you're actually— you're actually— um, how, how to put it? Uh, Breaking a covenant? Well, yeah, you're you're actually like shrinking down from from like this amazing um, blessing that God has like given His people, right? right? That uh, so and and what I mean by reject, not like I don't mean like the high handed. Oh, that's not for me. I mean if you're coming from a, a and I understand it. I was raised in the same thing raised in a worldview that takes for granted that it's been done away. You know, when you're trained that way, it's it's not instantaneous. You know, most people, I don't think, instantaneously go, wow, I was taught wrong. Usually there's a process of going, really? Am I, um, am I sure that, because you have to, you're, you're questioning entire traditions, right? And that's not always an easy thing to do. And so I can appreciate the, the the question and this is not a bash on on her saying that she's rejected God's commandment. I don't mean to imply that. But oh, I mean, no, if, no, you, no. if you go to that verse you just read, Caleb, it is such a uh, Shabbat points to such a wonderful um, wonderful truths that are that are so important and are fueling for our us being in the world, but not of the world. So um, I think people, they don't even know what they're missing, I guess, in a way. Okay. And that's one of the greatest points. And if in, in uh, one of the one books that I am happy to recommend to people, even though it's from a non-believer, is um, Abraham Heschel's The Sabbath. Uh, it's an excellent book. And it's it's a short read. It's maybe 100 pages. Now, 
full uh, disclaimer, Heschel is a is a uh, mystic, right? He's he's believes. Yeah, in- he's not really he's not really orthodox. He's not really conservative. I mean, he kind of he was an ecumenical. I mean, he marched with Martin Luther King Jr. Right. So so Heschel is also drunk. Uh, has had drunk in a lot of Christian theology, Christian thought. Well, and he was the right? ambassador. So, so he, and, and he was the ambassador between Judaism and the Pope for quite some exactly. time. Exactly. So, so recognize when you read Heschel, it's not like you're reading um, uh, Joseph Soloveitchik or um, right. who are some of these other, you know, or um, I don't know, my brain, Norman Lamb or any of these pub, uh, authors that write. Uh, in English, but they're like of an orthodox uh, worldview. Heschel's not that way. He's very much like Caleb said. He's very imaginative, um, uh, very midrashic, and sometimes into mysticism and things like that. But he's also it depends what you also, read. Yeah, it and, and he's also influenced by by Christian theology. So, but it's anyway, a, but it's if, a great book. If, it's a great if, book. Look, it, you're, it's going to be night and day if you pick up uh, Heschel's book, like the last book that he wrote that he died while he was writing. Heavenly Torah. This is filled with Jewish mysticism and with uh, the the Mirchava literature. Okay, and it's going to be night and day from something like The Sabbath by Abraham Heschel. Same author. Well, wait a minute. He didn't die. That's there's a the Heavenly Torah. Now maybe the English, the abridged version he was working on. But no, he died during the the he wrote the entire. He originally wrote it in Hebrew, and it was like his doctor dissertation. So unless he was working on a on a it, the, a revision of it. The beginning of it says that his do- that it was originally three books that were combined into one. He died during the the writing of the third book, and his daughter and uh, another person helped finish it. Okay, are you sure you're not talking about the English translation of it? Anyway, this is a side side foot. Side, side, side note. Foot. Anyway, um, the, the the difference is night and day though between those two two books. The Sabbath is a wonderful book because he, he shows what I think is this unbelievable passion for and love for keeping the Sabbath. And when I was reading that book for the first time, I kept saying to myself, yes, yes, this is exactly how I feel about the Sabbath. Yes. Like, man, why can't everybody feel like this about the Sabbath? Right. And I think that there's, there's a point that's made. I think it's in that book. There's a point that's made that not only does God give us a gift, he gives us the gift of the Sabbath, which is he gives us the gift of time to relax and to enjoy him, to stop and to focus on him, right? To breathe in God. But the other side of the coin is, is that what can you give to the God who has everything? And the answer in covenant terms is we give him a piece of everything. We give him a piece of our diet. We do that through the kosher laws, right? We give him a piece of our joy. We do that in the festivals. And that's a piece of culture as well. We uh, give him a piece of our dress in tzitzit, right? And we give him, uh, and modesty. And we give him a piece of our time as well. And we do that with the Sabbath. Every week we give him a piece of our time. One-seventh of a week. And it's a gift from us to God. Just like it's a gift from God to us. And there's this mutual gift that's going on in the Sabbath. And why anyone would ever want to take that away? Now, perhaps what might be said, like the the instant response will be, well, okay, but what if I want to keep the Sabbath on, on Sunday? That's not the gift that God gave. God did not give the gift of Sunday as a Sabbath. It's very specific in the Torah. He gave Shabbat. He gave the seventh day as a Sabbath. And he asks you to give him that time as well. And he does that in covenant terms. It is an eternal covenant between me and the children of Israel. Thoughts? Well, that's good. So, so that we could encourage her to maybe pick up that book to start. But then now she gets into First Corinthians eleven, right? Oh, and yeah. talks about dress. Uh, should I just be wearing? You know, she as a woman is asking, should she just be wearing a dress, or can she wear pants? Um, and then should she cover her head? Well, let's go for the next low hanging. We'll go backwards because I think that, uh, I think that the pants is going to be the next, uh, low hanging fruit here. Do you want to go for it first or should I? 
I, I can give my opinion, and it's just, I mean, it's my opinion, is that there, just as today, there are boundary-crossing um, types of clothing that publicly communicate to, to believer and unbeliever alike that someone is, that's why we call it trans, right? Because they're, cro- they're, they're uh, deliberately crossing the expectation. And usually, sometimes with our extreme feminist movement, or the way it, feminism is today, is this idea that built into society, these societal expectations are, is this patriarchal uh, authority that mm. determines all these things and that, that, and that's oppressive. And so they want to deliberately fly in the face of that. So, um, but I, uh, so if we set that aside, I think, you know, the Torah is clear that, um, men and women are distinct and it, the clothing should not, uh, blur the, uh, clothing should be a, appropriate according to that, those distinctions. I think that's, uh, for me, I come with that basic uh, distinction. Okay. And that, now then you go, okay, under that umbrella, if a woman wears uh, some sort of pants, is that crossing? And I would say most of the time, probably not. I don't think that's a problem. Uh, if, if they are obviously women's pants, you know, and I would say, well, you could say, well, what? Well, it's probably the material, the the color, the cut, the, the cut. You know, all the different things that that can be, they can be pants, and they can still be clearly women's pants. That's my opinion. So I wish I had a. I, there's a clip I could have grabbed from a Seinfeld episode. You're wearing women's glasses, anyway. Um, I agree with you. <laughs> I, I agree with you completely. I think that this is a cultural issue, first of all. Because, I mean, look, uh, it's the same. Should a man be wearing a skirt? Now, this is a question. When I was 19, I was I was 18. I was living in the old city of Jerusalem. And I remember asking uh, a couple of guys who were standing on the street, obviously Hasidic. And uh, so I just asked offhandedly, it's wrong for a man to wear a woman's garment, right? They said, yes. I said, okay. Now, keep, keep in mind, these guys are in all black and white, older, full beards, you know, obviously... Hasidic. I said, okay, well, what about a kilt? Can a Jewish man wear a kilt? Oh, like, oh, yeah. And they said, and they just kind of looked at each other and they looked back and said, if you're in Scotland, then that's not a woman's dress. It's not a woman's dress anywhere. It's obviously distinct from a skirt. A, a kilt is distinct and it's cultural. So you can you can wear a kilt. So the point is, is that just because we think of something as, you know, who thinks of, of pants as a man's garment now? I mean, in our culture, certainly we don't, right? Right. I mean, my wear, my wife wears, wears pants a lot. The pants that she wears, I would never be caught dead in. <laughs> right? So, okay. Um, so, in, in my opinion, as long as, I think Rob's right, as long as you're not blurring the lines between Male and female, I don't think that there's anything wrong with wearing pants. Okay, and finally, the most difficult of all three questions. Should a woman cover her head when she prays? And for that matter, should a man uncover his head when he's praying? Um, And uh, for those who receive our show notes, which you will still be able to receive. Okay, so don't, don't forget that. Please go to our, uh, our, our page on TorahResource.com. You can find it by going to radio, going down to the Robin Caleb show. That name will change, but uh, it'll still be there. So check it out. Um, in our show notes, there is an article by my father called Should I Remove My Keepa? You can find it also in the articles uh, section on TorahResource.com. Um, so... Um, it's a good article. And so when Rob and I were discussing this uh, yesterday, actually, I started doing research on this. And I have to say that I was toying around with several different ideas. And um, I, I think that my father has convinced me on the nature of this. Um, 
Should we read it? You want to read it? Read her, the first the Corinthians. Passage? Well, I mean, maybe not. There's For, we're we're talking about First Corinthians eleven, like right. two through sixteen or something like that, right? Is what we're talking about. Yeah. So uh, five, eleven five says, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her Here, head uncovered dishonors yeah. her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Here, here's here, there are a couple things. I don't think we should read through the whole thing. Okay, go for it. Unless you really want to, because nope, there's so many. There's so much to say about each verse. Right. What I did, I just typed up because there's so much. I typed up a couple of my own thoughts, and I, if I, I could just go one by one through those, and then we could go interact with those. A couple of things is that the word for man and woman there, um, it's unclear whether it should be translated husband and wife or man and woman, because it, it depends on the verse you look at. Because he says, because man was is is comes was taken out of woman, but woman was made for man, right? So you see that it can't always be talking about husband and wife. The other is that the word um, for head, kephale, is used both metaphorically and seemingly literally or idiomatically. In other words, where it says the head of every man is Messiah, the head of every woman is man, or is it wife and husband? You know, the, We have these terms that kind of... Um, have a slightly different nuance depending on where you zero in in the larger passage. And that makes it a little bit uh, uncertain. So I, I'm not, you know, with that in mind, I'm not coming really hard down on my interpretation because I don't, at this point, I, I don't have a strong conviction on reading it. However, I do have specific convictions of, that I'm building my, <laughs> my perspective with. And what is clear to me is that when it talks about the man, and it says katakephales, with, which is translated with head covered. This is the it's used, and this is one place where I don't think uh, your dad's article touches on, which I think could be helpful. Is it's used in Esther, the Septuagint of Esther six twelve, where Haman, after Haman has to remember Haman's all prideful, thinking he's going to be able to. Uh, that he's the one the king's talking about who gets honored. And then actually it's Mordecai that gets on the horse and Haman has to lead him around right. and say, such is the man. And then it says, Haman went home mourning and with his head covered. And it's this idea of this. I mean, it, he was publicly humiliated against his own pride. Right, 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 okay. right, right. I think that's important. I think so when, when Paul is talking about it, it is dishonors Messiah for a man. If man was in a public place and he was somehow marking a sense of disgrace, shame of his, uh, of his own shame and disgrace, but yet he's prophesying and praying that that is a dishonor to Messiah because it, Messiah, we should have confidence, right? We have boldness and confidence in our prayer in, in Messiah Yeshua uh, because we're forgiven. We, if, if, and that's Paul wants us to to understand this kind of disauthority because he's using this word head as like this this covering, or right? This, but it's metaphorical, right? The other the other point here, it's, so it's not talking about a kippah. This is not talking yeah, about not. a kippah. Yeah. So that Agreed. with with respect to the man, with the now what it says the woman when it's translated head uncovered, there's no noun for a covering used here. And this phrase is where it's difficult. It can it could mean it could be an idiom meaning loosed or disheveled hair, like wild kind of hair looking, or it could mean literally an uncovered head. But I I'm pretty convinced. I think your dad in the article uh, does a good job of showing that it, it seems to mean more loosed or disheveled hair. That is showing a, a disregard for God's created order, like it, like there's a wildness or a presumptuousness, um, and and the one point that your dad makes that I think is valid, is that Paul says it's a it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair shaved, right? To be to be shaven, um, it's a mark of public shame in, at that time. It's not talking about a woman who's has cancer and loses her hair, right? I mean, there's there's a sense of that her hair was shaved for a reason of shaming that prostitution. If a woman who, 
Yeah, if this woman has, has shaved her head and then she puts some sort of head covering on, that doesn't remove the disgrace of having shaved her head. Right. right? So the head covering is not what removes the, the disgrace. Um, and I think that's an important point. You know, um, some of the, the – so, yeah, go ahead. Keep going. I'm sorry. The, I, the last point, the last point has to do with the – for this, a woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. I want to talk about that. You see on the <laughs> internet, people think, oh, Paul's referring to Enoch or yeah. Jubilees where the angels want to uh, meet with, with uh, human women. And that's what Paul's warning them about and that somehow by covering their head – the women are protected from these angels. I, I, I don't think that's – I can understand why people would jump to that, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. I think um, – and there's a helpful note on the, in the uh, Net Bible, and it refers to Ephesians 3. And I think this is really helpful. And if, I'll just read Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. Paul Please. says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the – administration of the mystery, that economia, uh, of the mystery, which for the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the ecclesia to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So the idea is that this order, God, Messiah, man, woman, that is evident in the ecclesia, it's that everything needs to be done in order and to reflect proper honor, that that somehow sends a message out even into the heavenly realm. And so that's what I think is important to bring to this text, all those points. Um, I disagree with you on that. I'm still thinking about it. I disagree with you on that. Um, I, think that there, I think that there's more going on uh, culturally within, and I'm not saying, you know, just wait, because I know that people have said that this is only talking about uh, culture within Corinth. And um, whether or not that's true or not is neither here nor there. But uh, we have to remember that Paul is writing to a specific group of people and that something there's something more going on with this group than maybe what we can fully understand and will ever be able to understand until we are in the kingdom and get to ask Paul himself what you know who he was writing to and, and those kind of things. There's a lot of different discussions um, about what the group at Corinth looked like and how the group at Corinth was going to, uh, was, was dealing with certain things. Um, I think that the, and now I'll connect these in just a second. I think the idea of the angels, I, I think that's a bad translation. I think it should be messengers. And I don't think it means angelic beings. I think it means, uh, the people, the other believers that are coming as messengers from, uh, from other, uh, congregations. And other, you know, Paul and, and them would be considered messengers. And I think that, uh, I think outside believers is what he's talking about. I would say, you know, that is possible. I'd be willing to think about that. In Galatians, he says, you received me as an, uh, as an angel of God. Right. In other words, as a messenger, you received me as a messenger. So, um, that's not totally out of the picture. Anyway, continue on. Okay. So, um, there's... I saw an excellent paper, at, and I was t- telling Rob about this yesterday. I saw an excellent paper at the SBL, um, and this person was basing his work a lot off of um, this person, who is Edward Adams. The book is called The Earliest Christian Meeting Places. Uh almost exclusively houses question mark. Okay. So for a very long time, people have said that the, the, um, the ecclesia or the congregation in Corinth was uh, a home group. So they were meeting in a home. And what the lecture that I saw at the SBL was suggesting was that, um, was that this actually is not the case and that they, they were possibly renting a room at a, uh, at the at the pagan temple. Now I know how that sounds, but there are specific rooms that were connected to the temple, and in some archaeological digs, they've found these rooms that actually are not connected to the temple. They're right outside of the temple complex, and these rooms were you could rent these rooms. And so while it was owned by the temple, it wasn't actually uh, a part of the temple complex, the pagan temple. And uh, this person who gave the lecture was suggesting that this actually. Uh, if we take this as maybe a, a base and try to see 1 Corinthians through that lens, 
then a lot of the things that Paul talks about would work, uh, would, would be explained through people passing by and seeing this group. They didn't want to look like they were worshiping in the same way that the pagan te- uh, the people in the pagan temples. They needed to be distinct. The prostitutes in the in the temple uh, they had to shave their head, uh, and that's how you knew that they were prostitutes. And so this would explain uh, the the First Corinthians eleven passage and about women having uh, you know longer hair and not shaved hair because they didn't you know or shorter hair because they shouldn't look like the temple prostitutes so on and so forth. And then, of course, he starts his... Um, and now I'm not saying that I'm, I'm uh, buying into this 100%, but it is a uh, interesting to think about, even if we don't accept that they, uh, that they rented something that was directly owned by the pagan temple, if they were meeting in a place where um, outsiders were able to see them, it would be very important or even if it was kind of an open gathering, anybody could come, it'd be very important for people not to think that they were associating with the same kind of temple worship that was going on in Corinth. And so if we, I, I think that my dad, my dad's article on this, should I remove my key? But I think he brings up some very, very good points about culture in Corinth and what was going on there and how hair is is being discussed here now i know that there's people who disagree with this um but the idea that somehow the nephilim were st- you know still trying to procreate with women on earth and that this is what he means by the messengers or or caleb if i may or the the notion that somehow god is judging a woman or her prayers are going unheard because her head is uncovered right because she's not wearing a head covering i think we need to be careful because we there's no scripturally clear commandment, right? Right. Um, so, you know, is God going to leave something very vague and then judge people and then actually like, okay, no, I'm not going to answer your prayers, uh, oh woman, because you're, you aren't wearing the right kind of covering over your head. That, um, we have to be aware of that kind of suggestion. Yeah. Once again, that comes back to, well, yeah. Um, okay. So in my opinion, I don't think that it is necessary for a woman to cover her head when she, like with a scarf or with a tallit or whatever you want to say, a shawl or anything while she's praying. And I think that at, I mean, I will admit that, uh, maybe, uh, I, I'm not 100% solid on what I believe, <clears throat> pardon me. First Corinthians 11 is talking about, <clears throat> pardon me. But the one thing I can say is that I certainly don't think that it's saying that if a woman doesn't pray with something on her head, that, uh, you know, she's, she's dishonoring herself. Right, right, right. The best, the best method to, to investigate this for those who want to, I think, are laid out in, in Tim Haig's article, but basically is this, is look at the only other place we see this kata kephales phrase, the kata with the genitive, that Paul says, man with his head uncovered, whatever that means, it's the same phrase that it, it could be that Paul is citing the, uh, some cultural thing that was also reflected in the Septuagint's understanding right. of, of Haman. And then there are other places, too, where uh, where this Hafui uh, Rosh, uh, uncovered head, is used with David mourning for Absalom, a loss of Absalom, I think it's used, and I think it's used in Jeremiah. Hmm. Um, where it's rightful mark of, of, of mourning and, sh- and uh, possible shame. So um, that's, that's an important part of the conversation. And then on the, the flip side, whatever happens in, the, in numbers with the procedure of the sota ritual with the woman letting, uh, whether it's her womb, she lets her hair be disheveled or whether she uncovers her head, that seems to be the, the phrase that Paul is using here to talk about a woman. Uh, he's, it's used in the Septuagint to describe uh, the process of the, of the Sotah ritual, as well as I think, and Tim talks about this in the article, um, like pertaining to a leper. Um, so it, anyway, th- there are important points that can't be ignored when thinking through this, but but me too, you know, I, I don't really have a strong, um, I mean, I've looked at this, maybe other people have, have researched it way more in-depthly than I have, but 
in my opinion, um, it's not talking about a kippah, no. and it's not, it's not commanding that a woman literally cover her hair with with some sort of garment. The other thing, you know, obviously I'm having to spend a lot of time in First Corinthians because of the, the research I'm doing right now. The one thing that I'm realizing is that I don't think anyone has a fully clear understanding of exactly what's going on in First Corinthians. There's so much there, and there's so many nuances to the book. Um, even the really, really good scholars, there's just something about that book that is... Um, <clears throat> I don't even know how to how to describe it. You know, obviously his his Passover imagery is uh, is sprinkled throughout the entire book. Why is that? You know, obviously it seems to me like Passover is probably coming up. Is that a focal point though? I, you know, and then and then he has all these different rules about. Uh, you know, he's talking about uh, sexuality and and all these kind of things within the ecclesia. What was going on there? Obviously, we know that there was some horrible things going on there, but uh, but the question is, is I mean, was that why? Why is he? You know, why is he still hanging on to this group too, which seems to have horrible sexual immorality going on with within them? So that there's a lot of there's a lot of things happening in First Corinthians, and I. I I think that there's some good scholarship that's just starting to uh, come out that's that's really innovative and is making people rethink. Okay, we have one more uh, one more email here. Pardon me, I don't know what's going on. Okay, um, so last week we talked about the JWs, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and their view of the sacred name. Okay, uh, those who listen to that show, 199, will will. Remember Rob's statement, and this is in uh, response to that. Uh, quote, when you read a theological statement that sounds crazy before deciding whether or not it's her heretical, I think it's important to ask, number one, who wrote it and why? And number two, what did they mean by it? While I agree that the JWs are founded on a load of hooey, I can think of ways in which the statement that, quote, God becomes whatever he needs to become could be true. Not literally true, but figuratively, in the same way as Paul said he became a Greek to the Greeks, etc. He didn't literally become a Greek, but altered the presentation of his teaching according to his audience. If they do mean that God literally becomes whatever he needs to become, uh, like a tree, a Martian, a liberal Democrat, etc., then I agree that it's nonsense. <clears throat> you know, this is uh, interesting because when I hear what he's saying, I instantly think of the Christian church and more specifically, I think of the Catholic church. You think of people like Martin Luther, Zwingli, uh, Calvin, the reformers who can't even, you know, uh, even later Spurgeon, but, and he didn't come out of the Catholic church. Please don't hear me say that, but um, just the, you know, these, but speaking about the Catholic church, if you look at the reformers, they were in the Catholic church. Not only were they in it, but they were priests, monks, whatever in the Catholic Church, who that's where they were born. They were born in the system, yeah. right? But but somehow God, in that realm, <clears throat> used Scripture, right? It was the he. But did God ahead. manifest Himself there to them, and did He do it through the Catholic Church? I, I, that's a question I, I I don't have an answer to. The, the reformers, one of their sola scriptura. What does that mean? That is the they they got to a point where their their meditation on the Word of God and their prayer life and their diving into the original languages started splitting them away to where all of a sudden it it's a fork in the road. I'm either going to go with scripture or I got to go with the authority of this institution because they, right. it's not the same. And they, and sola scriptura is one little shorthand way of saying, dude, we're taking the, we're taking what the Bible says that we're taking this road and we can't go back on it. That's what, that's what sola scriptura means. And so I think God used his word, which is unchanging, right? I mean, for Luther, for example, he sees Paul teaching uh, what Habakkuk chapter two says, and he's like, 
wow, I used to think I had to do penance and I had to do all these things. And I didn't, and then I was still unsure whether God had forgiven me. What about my sin? My sin is so great. I'm such a desperate sinner. Every little whisper of a thought I have reeks of wickedness. But And God is so holy. I'm just, he's forever lost in this loop of what can he do to, to, to make himself right. He wasn't learning the core doctrines of grace right. in the institution he was in. And when he just put all that noise away by God's grace, put that away and started systematically learning scripture it it was evident he couldn't he couldn't serve god and <laughs> the system right he had to choose scripture so i would say god is not a shapeshifter god right. does not change he doesn't morph himself here's the other thing is we got to be careful because if you if you come from a arminian type i'm just going to use that term broadly an arminian kind of worldview you might think oh just like Paul became everything, I need to like do whatever I can to, to try to people. convince people to save them. I, that's not what Paul was doing. When Paul says this, it, what it means is he's trans, he was transgressing. We're talking about boundary transgressing, but he was doing it rightly. He says, I'm crossing social norms that normal people would be afraid to. Like I'm going to talk like, like a Jew talking to – like Yeshua did, talking to a sin woman. Or – that um, Elijah healing um, Naaman, the Syrian, for example, or, um, you know, being a, the whole Galatians issue. You know, Peter's like, well, these guys come from Jerusalem. I'm not going to eat with these Gentiles. Paul's like, look, you can't be thinking with those, those walls. Those walls are gone in Yeshua. It doesn't matter if you're a slave considered a a table and have this enjoy the same fellowship meal as a rich uh, master, a slave owner, let's say, or uh, all these things. And so when Paul says, I become to a Greek to a Greek or those without the law, I become as one outlaw. He's what he's saying is that I didn't worry about in the same way that Yeshua ate with sinners and to quote sinners and tax collectors. Yeshua wasn't letting the Pharisees determine who he could and could not invite to dinner or go accept an invitation with. That's what Paul's talking about. Well, not He's only not that, talk, Paul, here's the other, because not, not Yeshua says that, the salt can't. If the salt loses its saltiness, it's yeah. not good for anything. But not only Paul's that, never once says I'm I'm not becoming salt, something other than salt. It says that he took lashes how many times, which means he got kicked out of the out of the synagogue. He broke their expectation. Yeah, he he was refused to <clears throat> tow the the insider outsider tradition. But, but he wasn't under their authority. And so to take lashes to become part of that community again. In other words, he he went he took their punishment even though he didn't need to. And yeah, why it, did he do that? To become back to become part of the uh, of the congregation again in order to reach them. Yeah. I I, I mean so I think if someone's coming from a and I've heard this kind of thing before. <laughs> people who've heard sermons about, you know, you need to, you need to go out there. It's like there's this raging storm, and you need to go out and save as many people as you can, and and convince them by any means, you know, to try to argue them. And you know, my worldview, my reading of scripture, does not take me to that perspective. My reading right. is that. Yeshua is who he is, <laughs> right? He is who he is. That's not, and and it's the proclamation of, of his his lordship, of his being king, that he has authority over heaven and earth, um, and so on and so forth. All the message of the gospel is just a proclamation, right? It's not telling people, oh, you know, accept him into your heart. It's no, th this is the king, and this is what I think. N.T. Wright hits right up, nail right on the head. The gospel going out is a proclamation of who Christ is, of who Messiah is. And ultimately, like Paul says, every knee will bow. Every tongue is going to confess this, right? So it's not about you, you know, inviting, accepting Yeshua into your heart. That's a language that comes quite, I think that's fairly new kind of way of thinking of it. 
And um, what happens, though, is when people hear Yeshua proclaimed, Messiah proclaimed, by God's grace, though that word goes out into the world and, and it produces fruit and people hear it and they just believe, right? They hear it and they like, they want it. They will leave everything and they want to follow. They want to hear more. They want to, to, and that want is the working of the spirit in their hearts. Right. It's not an argue. It's not a one over by, oh, this guy argued better. You know, the <laughs> Jehovah Witness argued better than the Mormon, you know, so I'm going to go with the Jehovah Witness. <laughs> if that's a realm that you're in, then I would say, well, maybe you haven't heard the gospel really proclaimed, right, for for what it is. And you're caught up in in the idea of a rational choice model where it's like I evaluate whether or not I think Jesus is who he says he is. And then if it accepts if if he meets my standard then, then i accept uh, then i'm in and if, <clears throat> right. and if people are coming from that perspective um then i would say they haven't genuinely heard the proclamation of of the gospel well i, I don't know about, i mean okay let's be really careful i don't, you know, I, well, maybe I know, they've heard it and they they I know, and I, I, their ears yet i know a lot of good people and a lot of saved people who hold to arminian theology Right. Yeah. So I mean, I can't say that just because somebody says, "Oh well, uh, you know, I chose I chose God." Granted, I think that's wrong. Well, I'm not saying someone would be uns. I'm not saying that if someone is Armenian that they're unsaved. Okay. Oh no, I don't mean that at all. No, I'm. But I mean that if if their motivation is, I need to go out and become. Choose. Yeah. I need to like shape shift myself so that I can. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, now I get what you're saying. What, uh, <clears throat> because that that if I because if I don't, God won't th- save people. Yeah. Then that I I would say Scripture doesn't. I don't think Scripture supports us going in that realm. Uh, I I agree I, with you. I agree with you. I would never say that someone who claims to be Armenian is not saved. Not that's not for me to say. Um, and I understand that it's easy as a believer to be in Messiah to look back and go, wow, you know, it does seem like. I do. This does make sense, and I, I think I chose this. You know, I I can see how someone might think that way, um, but my argument is that even the faith is a gift. That right. That, the very fact that I believe is already evidence of the work of the Spirit. It's not coming after a choice, a, a, an evaluation process I make, and then I uh, decide it because the sinful person. All mankind, basically, our tastes, our 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 tastes are already warped. We are already called what we'll look to something that is not good, and we'll call it good, right? And we'll look to something that is that is evil, and we might call we might call it good. Just like Eve looked at the tree, and she says she saw that it was good. When no, no, it's not good, right? And and that's before she even ate of it. So how much more, like in Isaiah 5, you know, woe to those who, who call good evil and evil good, that if you're in sin, it's like like Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amidst people of unclean lips. Why is it, what does he mean by that? I mean, he's a prophet of God saying that. Mm-hmm. He's saying that he, he, there's, that uncleanness pertains to things that, do not even merit access to the holiness of God. Right. And so when we talk about the Holy Spirit and, and believing and having resurrection life, participating in the resurrection of Yeshua in the Spirit, that's, I don't see how to read that any other way than that is, that is a gift. That's Messiah's work. That's not anything I did uh, to put myself in there, in, in that space. Have you noticed that the past, I think it's been three or four shows, no matter what we're talking about, <clears throat> we've seemed to move into the doctrines of grace at some point. They're good to hear. They're good to review. That's right. <laughs> well, oh, it, you know, that reminds me, we had someone contact us privately through our Facebook page. And this, this is interesting uh, on the social media thing. You know, uh, you don't know, got Twitter. And I realized I hadn't been on Twitter for a while and someone had reached out to me. So yesterday I went through, I got that. On Facebook, we have people private message us, and then on our, our YouTube channel, and then just emails. So it's great. We have different avenues, and and not all people are in all of those channels, right? right. There's someone who just connected. All they know us is through Facebook, or all they know us is through Twitter, et cetera. 
But someone asked. They, they were really very uh, – it was a lady, real sweet. But she said, you know, I'm really struggling with this uh, idea of uh, sovereignty of God and election, you know. And I've had people locally here in our local community email me about this issue. And so I get it. It's, you know, it's good to be talking about this sort of thing. Here's, um, the th- here's the thing, though, Rob. You know what? Because for any of our newer listeners, you may not know this. I held Arminian theology until I was about 31 years old, maybe 32. So not long. I'm 36 now. Um, so about five years, I think, I've, I, 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 the switch flipped. Um, but I think that a lot of it, and not for everyone, please don't hear me. This is not a blanket statement. But I think for a lot of people it's either not quite understanding what uh, each side is saying or not understanding the, the argument fully. Um, I, I don't think I did, um, even though I, I had read a lot and uh, was trying to better understand, I don't think I quite got exactly the implications of what I was saying. And so I think that, I think that that's where a lot of the uh, confusion and or a lot of the, uh, initial rejection of the doctrines of grace would come from. Now, that's not across the board by any stretch of the imagination. I know good people who fully understand what they're, what they're saying. And, and, uh, but you know, a lot of the, a lot of the friends that I have, uh, recently, uh, we've gotten into these kind of conversations and, uh, these are people who have, you know, been followers of the Messiah since they were young. And, they just, I, as I talk to them, I realize, well, no, 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 that's not what, that's not what, what I'm saying. You know, that's not what we're teaching here. Um, and so anyway, uh, I think that some of it just comes from confusion of all those things. Okay. Well, uh, we have completed 200 shows. Woohoo. Two, 200 of the Robin Caleb shows. And next week we will come back, but we will come back with a different name and maybe a little bit different format. And same same bat time. Same, same bat, bat time. Show. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you can still get show notes um, and all sorts of great stuff. But uh, sincerely, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for uh, sticking with us. The Loyalty Six have stuck with us for 200 shows. And boy, we sure are happy to, uh, to have been able to complete that many. So uh, don't forget... Since we're coming back so next week. So it might week, be a new, a new exit. Uh, you never can music, tell. Maybe. never can tell. Uh, since we're coming back next week, don't forget to uh, send us uh, emails. Seahag at TorahResource.com. And our comment line is going to stay the same. 253-465-3205. And uh, yeah, send us all sorts of stuff. Go to TorahResource.com and find all sorts of cool stuff. Sign up for our show notes. We look forward to uh, a long time to come. But what we're going to try to change to is what we have always wanted to focus on. That's the Messiah, that the Messiah matters. We're just trying to give glory to our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.